In chapter 38, we took a slight detour from the story of Joseph. It was not a pleasant detour. It was the story of Judah and the incestuous relationship he had with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And that was another one of those Genesis stories where nobody comes out looking very good. But we also saw that the Lord is building up to a great moment of redemption in Judah's life. And that is happening, chapter 38 is happening alongside the events of 39 through 40, I believe it's chapter 44, when Joseph is going to be reunited with his brothers. So we are returning to Joseph, who is the fourth major patriarch of the book of Genesis. We've had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And the last time we saw him, he had been sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt. His father thinks he's dead, and he's now in Egypt. Young man, we believe probably around 17 years of age right now. And this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham in chapter 15, verse 13, when God established the covenant with him. He said, your descendants shall be strangers in a land that they do not know for 400 years. And that land is, of course, Egypt. And the end of that is going to be the Exodus. But it begins with Joseph. And Joseph is the classic picture in scripture of somebody who does everything right, and yet nothing goes right for him. And this is an important lesson for us to learn. The Bible is very clear about it. Sometimes we can get really sunshine and rainbows about life as a Christian, but it is important to know. Sometimes you can do everything right and still get mistreated. In particular tonight, we're going to talk about false accusations. The Bible never promises that if you do everything right, that nothing bad is going to happen to you. In fact, it teaches us the opposite of that. And false accusations are part of life. When you get accused of doing or being something that you are not or have not done. And the temptation in those situations is to do one of two things. Either to defend your honor and cut loose and get in people's faces and speak loudly and make all kinds of proofs and attempts to demonstrate your own innocence. And in the process, you end up compromising whatever integrity you had. Or just to give up on your honor entirely. Sometimes when we are treated unfairly or accused by people of being something we're not, we say, well, that's it then. If that's how they think I am, then that's how I'm going to be. Why would I bother trying to be righteous if everybody's going to think I'm wicked anyway? Well, neither one of those things is, of course, an appropriate response. And Joseph is the standard to follow. And more than that, Lord Jesus Christ himself is the standard to follow of how to endure slander and false accusation. And in fact, not just his example, Jesus told us how to respond in these situations. So this verse is going to sort of overlook the whole study tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, the very end of the Beatitudes. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells us there, Christians are always going to be at risk for persecution, for slander, for false accusation, because of Christ specifically, or because of his word, the commandments that we must follow that the world does not understand. And it's tough in those situations because you're trying to make people clear, this is, this is not an attack against you. This is not because I hate you. This is not because I don't want to help you. This is because of what God's word has said. 
And in the end, it becomes persecution because you're being persecuted for following the command of Jesus Christ, even if the name itself is not what's at stake. And you've got to be prepared to navigate situations like that, especially in this tumultuous time that we're living in, where false accusations and accusations of every kind are flying fast and furious everywhere. And in the example of Joseph in this chapter, we're going to see four ways to try and avoid false accusation. And these are good lessons, and Joseph is going to follow all four of them. But at the end, he's still going to be falsely accused and falsely suffer for it. So when we get to the end, we're going to look at how to deal when it comes anyway. But that doesn't mean that we should not do everything we can to establish our own integrity. So let's begin. We're going to end up doing the whole chapter tonight, but let's read the first three verses. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands." We began with Joseph, the favored son of his father. He was the one that was given, as we said, the technicolor dream coat. That we're not quite sure exactly what that meant, the coat of many colors. Maybe it was long-sleeved, maybe it was embroidered. The point is, it was nicer than everybody else's. And has made his brothers jealous, especially the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, which would have been Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, because... Joseph was the legitimate son of Rachel and then was put over all of them. And he was sent down into slavery and was bought by a man named Potiphar in Egypt. Now, Egypt, of course, was the superpower of the day. It was the largest empire. They were technologically advanced. It is tough to know at exactly what point of Egyptian history Joseph was here because Historically, it's tough for us to determine the chronology of Egypt because it was, it's just so long ago. We'll get into that more when we get to Exodus because that seems to be a little easier to, to time. And then you can work backwards a couple hundred years and get to Joseph. But I wish I could give you more background information, but we'll get to that. The point is that however Joseph began, and we did examine this possibility two times ago, that Joseph could possibly have not been the reluctant hero of the family, but kind of a spoiled brat, going around, showing off his coat, letting everybody know about that dream I had where you're all going to bow down to me someday. And it says his father had to rebuke him for it. Going around telling everybody the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. And his brothers despised him. Well, it could be, it could not be. The point is, whatever he was, this journey on this slave caravan down to Egypt seems to have woke him up. And he has learned to do our first way to avoid a false accusation, which is to know God. Joseph knew God. It says the Lord was with him. The Lord blessed him. And not just that, but his master Potiphar, who did not even believe in Jacob's God, saw that Jacob's God was with him. This is an astonishing thing that we are able to do. The Bible makes clear that God may be known. God does not hide himself from us. But God, it says in one part of Proverbs, wisdom is shouting in the street. The Lord is desirous to be known by his people. Proverbs 2 verses 4 and 5 says that if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will know wisdom and find the knowledge of God. 
Matthew 7, Jesus said, Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. For everybody who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. God is waiting to be known by us. A profound thing, and something we shouldn't get over. There's a song that I, I co-wrote with some folks back home, and the, the, the bridge of that song is, is really the cry of my heart, where it says, If God may be known, nothing else matters. As far as I'm concerned, if I can know God, everything else just shrivels into insignificance. If that's possible, what, am I going to go watch football? I like football, but God may be known. I'm going to go out and make a lot of money. That's great, but I can know God. This is something that we can do, that we have opened to us by the death of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, so it is something that we should do. Now, what does it mean to know God? Well, a couple things. It's not just belief, not just belief in God. It's good that you believe in God, but that's not the same thing as knowing God. It's not the same thing as obedience. You might obey God, and I hope you do, but that's not the same thing as knowing God. You believe in the president, and you obey the Congress for the most part, but that doesn't mean that you know them, am I right? This is active faith. This is intimate familiarity with God himself. Like when there was the, the tabernacle of prayer that you could go to in the camp of the Israelites. But when Moses went to that tabernacle of prayer, the, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire would move from the tabernacle to where Moses was. And it was a big show. Everybody would come out and watch the Lord go by because it was such an amazing thing to watch. But the question becomes, why didn't anybody else do that? Why didn't anybody else cultivate that relationship with God? Joshua did, and we all know how the Lord used Joshua. It says that Joshua didn't even leave that tabernacle. He stayed there as often as he could. This is an experience of the presence of God, to know what it's like when God is there. And if you don't know what it means when I say the presence of God, I can't really explain it to you. All I can say is you just know when God is there, when God is speaking, when God's about to do something. You also know the counterfeit. If you know the voice of the Lord, you know the presence of God, and you sit in a room where it's very emotional and very excited, you're going to sit back and say, yeah, but I don't know if God is here. This is very exciting, but is God here? You know the ways of the Lord. They're not just words on a page to you. You read the Psalms of how God dealt with David, and you go, that's, that's right. I'm not just believing it because it's in Scripture. I've experienced that. You have a testimony of how God works in your life. You know the voice of the Lord when God speaks to you. And this is all by the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And if you're not sure about that, Romans 8 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not have Christ. So if you're saved, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he wants to speak to you. You ought to get to know him. How do I do that? I wish I could tell you it's something special and complicated, but it's not. Same stuff you learned since you were in one of them children's ministry classes over there. Prayer, worship, read your Bible, fellowship with other Christians. Find someone who knows God and attach yourself to them. Like Elisha told Elijah, I'm not going to leave you until I get a double portion of whatever it is you've got. Be like that. That's what will carry you through. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, Paul did not know Christ while he was alive, which tells us that it is possible to know Christ even if you've never seen Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the attitude of a Christian. Nothing else matters when it comes to your pursuit of God. 
Paul saw it as an advantage to him. He says, this is an advantageous trade if I give up everything to know Christ. If I lose my career, if I lose my power and my influence, even if I lose years off my life, it's worth it if I can know God. You know, we, I mentioned a second ago, we are, we are Protestants, and we tend to look very skeptically at church history. But I have a particular fascination for what are called the Desert Fathers, the, the monks that used to go into the desert. And that, that whole institution became very corrupted. But if you read the stories of some of these early men that went out into the desert to be alone and meditate and seek the Lord, especially guys like, like Anthony the Great, as he's known, they went out and said, I'm going to commit myself for years to prayer and fasting and study of the scriptures and meditation. And we can look at that and say, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't have to do that. All right, well, I assume you have a better plan then. It, it does us no good to criticize what somebody else did to know God and then do nothing about it. It's sort of like criticizing prayer in schools and yet nobody prays in the church. So your criticism doesn't mean a whole lot if you're not doing something else. And those guys light my fire, I'll tell you what. Like, this guy gave up everything. He was rich, and he gave up everything to go live in the desert. And he did weird stuff. You know, like he wore a hair shirt and stuff like that. Okay, that, that is weird. But if you knew that wearing a hair shirt would make you know God better, would you do it? I hope that attitude, at the very least, is in your heart. If you know God and you live out like the person who knows God, it'll make you the kind of person to whom accusations cannot stick. What are you going to accuse Joseph of? He knows God. God is with him. So know God. That's the first way to avoid false accusations, although it certainly has value on its own, doesn't it? Let's read verses 4 through 6. So Joseph found favor in his, that is Potiphar's, sight, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This is going to happen over and over again, where Joseph is going to be put into a tough situation, but the Lord will be with him, and the Lord will help him to find favor with the people who are in authority over him. And he's going to rise all the way to the top. Three different times it's going to happen to him. And so Joseph is blessed even in his slavery. He became the overseer, what the New Testament would call the steward of the house. If you've ever watched an old movie where they still had servants or a period piece of some kind where you've got the head servant, the, that big butler. There's always a big fat butler. I don't know why. But like the, the Lord and the lady, they don't really pay attention to what's going on. They just expect it to be happening. Meanwhile, he runs the roost, right? He rules what's going on in that place. I've never watched Downton Abbey, but I'm sure it happens in that because it's that sort of thing. Managing everything, top to bottom. That's Joseph. Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything except the food he eats, right? Let me pick dinner every once in a while. Other than that, you handle the finances, you handle the organizing of the house, you handle the staff, you, you take care of everything, Joseph. Now, we do not want to neglect the fact that it was God's sovereign blessing that caused everything to go well for Potiphar and for Joseph. But when you know God... God makes you into the kind of person who is easy to bless because he teaches you wisdom, as we read in the book of Proverbs. So the next lesson that we learn from Joseph, if you want to avoid a false accusation, do a great job. If you want to avoid false accusation, do a great job. At whatever you're doing, at work, at home, do it well. 
Colossians 3, this is the instruction that Paul and his companions gave to the bond servants, which could mean slave. It could mean a little different than slave. The idea is anybody who has somebody over you. Here's what he told them to do. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, meaning only when they're looking, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Isn't that amazing that the Lord tells people who have somebody in authority over them, he doesn't say, don't let them tell you what to do. He doesn't say you're a Christian, so do a bad job and tell your boss that only God can judge you. He says, do a great job. Whatever the domain, do it well. When you're at work, work hard at work. Isn't it amazing how few people work when they're supposed to be working at work? Some of y'all gotten frustrated by that. Some of y'all are trying not to meet my eyes because you do that. Maybe you can remember back when you used to do that and then you grew up and that's when things started to go well for you. It's really interesting when I was a manager of a, of a company and I had employees under me and they were always coming in and out. Really, the ones that were the rock stars were the ones that just did what they were supposed to do. I, didn't, I would tell my, my, the owner of the company, I'd say, I don't need anybody who's going to be great and go above and beyond. I just want somebody who's going to do what's required of them. Good help is hard to find, as they say. Take care of your family. Right? Don't neglect your family. That, that, that takes effort, too. Your children, your marriage, your relationships with your extended family. You've got to work at that. It's not going to happen on its own. And if you do a great job at work and then you come home and you don't do a good job, your wife might start to resent you for it. Oh, you can put in all kinds of effort at work. You take his phone call anytime he calls. You drop everything if something breaks up at the office, but you can't come to the kid's game once. You see that? And you can flip that however you want. Do a great job. I've known uh, men who have gotten frustrated. I'm trying to find an example for the other side here too where it feels like when we go out, my wife is very pleasant to everybody. She takes care to make sure she looks presentable and she's kind and she's sweet. And then we get in the car and she's rude and she doesn't want to talk. And when we're at home, she doesn't have time to engage with me and it's just kind of unpleasant to be around her. And I wouldn't mind that so much except that when we go out, she can do that for everybody else. You can't do that for me. So you put in effort. Do whatever you're doing. Do it well and it'll prevent you from those false accusations. Gain a reputation for excellence and effort at everything you do. You can't always excel at everything you do, but you should at least be known for putting forth the effort. And don't you all know that the people who are less talented but work the hardest, those are the ones that are going to get ahead, right? You can have less ability, but if you have more effort, you're going to do well. And I can tell you Joseph was exactly that kind of guy. Everybody had to answer to Joseph. God does not give us permission to slack off based on the task. But it's not fair for him to ask me to do this. Slavery wasn't fair either. But the Lord says, I want you to be a witness and treat your life like you're working for me. Fear the Lord. Don't fear them. You fear me. And you work like you're working for me. And there's other places in the New Testament and even in the Old where it's like, do you want to win over your master? Do you want to win over the king? Do you want to win over whoever it is who's in authority over you? Do a great job, even when they don't deserve it. Sometimes a boss will see you doing really well, even though he knows he's been a jerk, and he'll be an extra jerk to you to see if he can break you. Isn't that the case? Haven't you found that to be true? If you keep going through that, 
you might be surprised what kind of friend you can gain on the other side. It's such a good testimony. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, you're such a good worker, why do you do this? And I tell them, you got to tell them. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm just so great, you know, this is how I was raised, you know. you got to say, I'm, because I'm working for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll just open it up. I say, I'm a Christian, and I believe that everything I do, I should do it with all my heart. People always get real uncomfortable when you say that. Oh, oh, oh okay, uh, all right. Didn't think we were going to get religious real quick, but... But it's true. It's a good testimony. And it'll work well for you, right? When you're lazy, it'll eat away at your soul. Because not only are you working at a job, for example, that you don't like, but you're not even doing a good job at that job. So all you do is sit around hating that job. And then you come home and you hate the job some more at home. And then you go back and you hate it. But if you're putting forth effort to try and improve it and make it better, and this, I hate the way this system works. It's so inefficient. Go find a way to make it better. Improve it. And then be prepared to be made the, the overseer. Okay, you're going to be in charge of all these things now. might not be what you wanted, but it's going to be a good testimony for the Lord. The best workers are not susceptible to accusation from their enemies. This happened from time to time when I was a manager, as I said. People would call and be like, you know, you know what he's been doing. You know, he doesn't do everything he says he does. He, he keeps the money and he lies. And he, you know, he's always you know, trying to flirt with somebody that's not his wife. And I'm like, I don't believe you. I know what you're like, and I know what he's like. And when you are a hard worker and you do well, you gain a reputation that is accusation-proof, which is what you want to try to do. That's what Joseph did. So now, okay, he's a slave, but now he is in charge of everything going on in this estate. The Lord has blessed him. But here comes the danger in the end of verse 6 into verse 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Only two other guys are given that that status in scripture, David and his son Absalom. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Here's the danger. Potiphar's wife desires an affair with the young, handsome Joseph. It is possible, although I'm not convinced, but I'm going to float this out there because it's an interesting possibility. That the word that it uses for officer in verse 1 relating to Potiphar is the Hebrew word saris, which is usually translated eunuch. You're familiar with this in scripture. Very often high-ranking officials in the king's court would be castrated because the idea is now this guy is safe around the queen. He's safe around the other courtiers' wives. And also he's not going to have children and try and stage some kind of coup for me. It was a barbaric practice, but there it is. So that is the word it uses. And if that is the case for Potiphar, that might explain some of this story, why she was sniffing around Joseph in this way. If her husband was a eunuch, then obviously that would not have been a part of their marriage. But it is interesting because Potiphar gets angry when this happens, and he has kept her from Joseph, obviously, and he's the captain of the guard. So it seems unlikely to me that that is the case, because that the word eunuch we do know later is used almost as an official title, like it used to mean somebody who was castrated, but later it just came to mean anybody who was in charge. So that's something to consider as you read through this. I had not realized that before, but it is a possibility. 
It's interesting, I've noted a lot of these, unfortunately, these rather sordid sexual stories have a lot of ambiguity in the Hebrew language as to what exactly is going on. So it's just something to note. Maybe they were trying to be discreet in the way that they related it to us. But the lesson for us, opportunities for compromise and sin are always going to be present. So if you want to avoid false accusations, number three thing you've got to do is resist compromise. I love the way Joseph handled himself here. He did not try to duck around it. He didn't try to play around and keep it at a distance. He confronted it head on. And to be fair, she confronted him head on as well. It says that she lifted up her eyes at him, cast her eyes on Joseph. So maybe she started by being a little more subtle, a little more flirtatious, and he didn't get it as she saw it until she comes out and asks him to lie with her. And Joseph has, a, has an upfront manly response. He's not playing games. He says, I have respect for my master. I, I was sold into slavery. I could have ended up anywhere. Instead, I ended up here because of him. So how could I betray his trust that way, number one? And number two, I fear the Lord, the Lord who has blessed me and preserved me through all this. I, I could not do this thing. This is how we start when it comes to compromise. Don't explore your options when it comes to sin. Eve's problem in Genesis chapter 3 was that she had been given everything, but was obsessed with the one thing she couldn't have. Joseph is in the same situation, but he knows better than to be sitting under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so to speak. He said he would not consent to listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. That lie beside her is a very interesting translation, because she says, lie with me, and then he says he wouldn't even lie beside her, as if she was trying to say, look, I'm not, I don't want to do anything, just, just come sit. Just come sit down. Just come lay down. You've been working all day. Just come lay down. He's like, ah, no. He, he is drawing the lines very sharp. He's not crossing them over. And that's the way to do it. Joseph, after he knew this was the case, drew the lines even tighter. Obviously, he was the steward of the house. He would have known her. She would have been expressing her wishes on some things, I don't doubt. But he got to the point where he's like, listen, I'm not even going to be around you anymore. And he was the steward of the house. He was able to arrange that. That's a wise idea. Proverbs chapter 6 and 7 actually give us long descriptions of how to avoid adultery and that we should avoid adultery. And Solomon says to his son in this passage, and he's talking specifically not about any woman, but about a married woman who is acting like Potiphar's wife, who's trying to seduce his son. He says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. What's that deal about the prostitute? He's saying, if you go off and commit a sin with a woman of the night, it's going to cost you whatever the cost was. But there's going to be no other fallout from that because she's not married. But if you do something like that with a married woman, it could be your life. And he goes on to talk about the, the wrath of a jealous husband and all the rest of it. Don't play around with sin, especially sexual sin and especially adultery. You've got to draw the lines and don't compromise. Joseph realizes what this woman wants. He's had the conversation. He's made his position known. She's not backing down. So he says, all right, you know what? I'm not coming into your room. I'm not listening to what you have to say. And I'm certainly not going to lay down next to you or sit next to you. Oh, isn't that a problem for us in sin? Oh, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go there. You know, she's calling you. Don't, don't take that phone call. You know what she says? I'm just going to talk to her. Oh, sure you are. 
I'm just going to go over to her house. She says she's sad and she wants somebody to be with her. We all know where that's going. And that could be attached to any other sin you like. You know how it starts. And you've got to be able to be that self-analytical to know your patterns of sin. What snares you and what do the early stages look like? And find ways to prevent those early stages. This is the first conversation we always have in premarital counseling. For some reason, the book that we use, it is great, but it saves the relationship sexually to chapter 10. Like That's like the first thing that we need to discuss here. And we work together with the uh, engaged couple. What's your plan? How are you going to avoid this sexual temptation? And a lot of times we help them drop rules. We let them do it, but we kind of talk them through it. Like, Y'all don't need to be parking together in the middle of the night out somewhere where nobody can find you. You don't need to be hanging out in her bedroom when nobody else is there. You don't need to be sending pictures like that to each other or texting things like that. And we always tell them, as it gets closer to the wedding day, don't loosen those restrictions, tighten those restrictions. Maybe you shouldn't be kissing anymore as you get a little closer because it's just getting harder and harder because you know it's about to happen and you're excited. And that's good. But Song of Solomon says, do not awaken love until it pleases. Don't do the things that are supposed to stimulate your body and get you ready to be with your wife or husband when you don't have a wife or husband, especially concerning married people. You don't need to be having text conversations with somebody you are not married to. You do not need to be having emails with old girlfriends or boyfriends or talking to people on Facebook that you used to be connected to. Well, we're we're just talking. Don't do that. Don't be like that. Don't, don't be alone with a woman or a man if you can help it if you're married. Well, if I don't do that, my boss is going to fire me. Well, it might be worth it to lose the job then. Draw the lines and don't compromise. And you can apply this to anything. Financial corruption, substance abuse. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm just going to go out with the boys to the bar. Okay. Anger, violence, whatever it is. If you want to avoid false accusation, don't let yourself get into a situation that could be misunderstood. Hey, if Joseph is lying down on the bed with this woman and they were not doing anything, but somebody walks in, what do they think is going on? Oh, nothing happened. Okay, fine. Now nothing had happened, but now everybody thinks they know what happened. So don't even go there. It might take extra effort and it might even be painful, but you've got to do it. So resist compromise. I'm not going to do the thing. I'm just going to get up right next to the thing. Don't do that. Verses 11 and 12. Unfortunately, it's going to take a sad turn. Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Satan is crafty. And if you resist temptation, he will get more and more insistent. You ever be in a situation, it does not have to be sexual, it could be anything, where you feel like the temptation to sin is always right in front of your face? Like everywhere I go, there's always this opportunity. And then the more you pray about it, sometimes it seems like the worse it gets because Satan is after you. You have a personal evil adversary. It's not just coincidence. Christians should not believe in coincidences when it comes to things like that. Satan is trying to tempt you and get you down. And this woman was as crafty as she comes. She set Joseph up. She makes it so that there's nobody in the house but her. And she comes up to him, grabs him by the shirt, and demands that he sin with her. You can imagine this was probably quite an exchange here. You can do your best to avoid sin, but sometimes temptation grabs you by the collar. What do you do then? 
Joseph shows us what to do. And the number four way to avoid false accusation is flee temptation. Sometimes you just got to run for your life. I've done everything I could to stay away from this woman. We had an upfront conversation. I'm not listening to this talk anymore. But now she sets it up where it's just me and her, and she grabs me and demands. So what do you do? You run. You get out and run. This is what Paul tells us to do. 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. So that, that kind of blows up that excuse. Of, well, I'm young. This is what people do when they're young. Paul says, flee those things and chase down righteousness. There comes a time where you've done everything you could do and you have not done anything wrong, but the choice is a simple yes or no. It's not a matter of protecting yourself. It is now an act of your will to either commit the sin or not commit the sin. You've got to be ready to say no and bear the consequences, whatever they may be. Daniel is, is another great story that tells us this, right? Daniel chapter 6. They wanted to get rid of Daniel because like Joseph, he was rising up to be second in the empire. Well, what are we going to do? They had guys follow him. They were doing their oppo research on Daniel and they couldn't find anything about him. And all he does is pray all day. So we'll make prayer illegal. Kind of a weird thing to do, isn't it? But that's what they did. And so it came down to, is Daniel going to not pray? Is he going to maybe do it in secret where nobody can see him? No, it says he went home, he opened his window, and he stood out and prayed toward Jerusalem like he always did, and they caught him the first time. And they said, you've, you've shown yourself to be treasonous toward the king. Was he? No, of course not. Darius was kind of duped in that story, and he had no idea that he was putting his top guy in the lion's den, but that's what had to happen. And the Lord preserved him. And the same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But sometimes, like Joseph, you're, there's going to be no miraculous provision. You're going to have to face those consequences. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's got to happen. When you are caught by a woman or a man, this happens. It can happen to ladies, too. When you're at the party and the drugs are out on the table and you're being mocked and made fun of for abstaining, when the corruption is starting to creep into the meeting. It started out just like a normal meeting, but now the things we're talking about and going to decide are unethical and not right. And you, by being there, are giving your tacit approval. When the government begins to make demands on the church, like you've got to burn incense to Caesar, and there were countless Christians that were torn apart by wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum for refusing to do that. And there's all this literature of these Romans that couldn't understand. Like, don't they get it? It's a loyalty thing. It's not a worship thing. It's loyalty. But the Christians said, we will not worship or say anybody else is Lord other than Jesus Christ. And they died for it. The answer is to flee temptation, to run, to refuse, to say no. Jesus said it's better to cut off your hand than to sin with your hand in Mark chapter 9. Better to cut out your eye than to sin with your eye. Better to get rid of your iPhone than to sin with your iPhone. Better to delete your Instagram than to keep sinning with your Instagram. Better to stop hanging out with that guy than to keep sinning with that guy. They're going to be upset at me. You've got to run for your life. Well, Potiphar's wife will be upset. She'll think I don't like her. Okay. She'll get over it. She's got a husband to do that for her. Oh, and I've seen men especially get in this trap where there's some woman that is not your wife and you're in this relationship and you're talking, always having these deep conversations and 
you feel like it's just not going well and you're, maybe your wife finds out about it, you've got to break that off. Well, but she's, she's so alone and she's got nobody to talk to and if I don't do that, then, then she won't have anybody that loves her and, and she said she'd kill herself if I stopped talking to her and if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that one. She'll find someone else. She had someone else before you and you've already committed yourself to somebody. The consequences are going to come. But it's better to face the consequences than to fall into sin. Better to face the gulag with the Lord than to be walking free and yet have blasphemed his name and denied him. Your final way to avoid a a false accusation is to make sure that if it comes, it is indeed a false accusation. And this was the case for Joseph. He did everything he was supposed to do, up to and including running for it. She had him by his His outer garment, you can picture him wriggling his arms out of it on his way out. Maybe it tore in her hand, we don't know. But he ran for it. And you might look at this and say something like, well, that seems like a rather unwise thing to do because he exposed himself to this accusation. You know what? Sometimes there is no good solution other than just getting out of there. Verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house... She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The lies. The consistent lies. Preserving the crime scene so that her husband can see. Sometimes even if you do everything right, the false accusations are going to come for you. She uses his garment. There's an interesting pattern in Joseph's life of garments getting him into trouble. Not quite sure what the significance of that is, but there it is. And you might not grab this because we're familiar with the term, but by saying that Hebrew, at this stage in history, a Hebrew was not specifically referring to the Jews. A Hebrew was from an older word like Habiru. And it was almost like calling somebody a gypsy. You can think of it that way. It meant wanderer. It meant somebody that didn't have a fixed place. So this is an ethnic slur that she's throwing at him. This Hebrew, this non-Egyptian and we're going to see later in the, at the end of Genesis the Egyptians don't want to live next to the Hebrews because they're around cattle and sheep all day and they're dirty and we don't want to be with them. And you know that the, the Egyptians, of course, would shave all their hair because the hair was unclean, right? And the Hebrews had the long beard. So you can see the prejudice at work here. This Hebrew that you brought in here to laugh at me. That word, we've talked about this before, is tzachak. And it's the word where Isaac gets his name to laugh. This helps us understand what it means earlier when it said that Abimelech saw Isaac laughing with his wife. Apparently this was a euphemism for some kind of sexual or romantic activity. And she falsely accuses Joseph of rape. And unfortunately, there are still to this day false accusations of rape, of financial malfeasance, of overbearing leadership, racism, of sexism, you name it. All those things are real, but sometimes people like to leverage the strong emotion that we have with these things in order to take people down that they don't like. People have tried to do this to me. 
People have come in and accused me of, this was a weird one. I was in like freshman year of high school, sophomore year of high school, and I was uh, working at a fine dining restaurant in the kitchen, and the, there was one of the waiters whose wife came to our church off and on, and one day she came to my parents at church, and she said, you know, I've got to tell you some things about Tyler. I don't think you're going to like him. And my dad, who is a godly man and knows some of the things we're going to talk about in a minute, he says, let me call him over first. She goes, no, 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 don't call him over. He goes, no, 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 let's bring him over here. <laughs> I'm like 14 years old, 15, you know, and she says, uh, he says, all right, well, now why don't you say what it is? And I said, well, my husband said that when he's at work, he talks about how he hates God and he's always cussing up a storm and he's always stealing booze from the alcohol freezer and he's telling all the kids if, that if they're, if they're going to a party to let him know because he's the party guy, which is, if you know me, it's not even close, you know. And, uh, you know, I was a little taken aback by this and I was like, I don't know what in the world he could have heard, but that's, that's not the case. And she's, I'm telling you, this is not, she goes, she goes no, 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 you're lying. I remember she was like shaking her head just like that. No, 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 no. My dad goes, okay, well, I hear you, but I've also heard my son and I know him and I, I'm going to choose to believe him. So that's that. And she goes, okay, bye. And she left and we never saw her again, but <laughs> totally made up, total false accusation. And that happens to us. It's part of life, unfortunately. There are people who there's all kinds of motivations. They envy you. Maybe they envy your status, your place. They want what you have, and so they want to ruin what you have because that way they're bringing you down to their level. Maybe they just hate God. You ever worked with somebody like that? They just hate God or a neighbor who just hates God and hates religious people and hates Christians, doesn't want anything to do with them, and they want to go out of their way to ruin their lives. Maybe they've got an agenda. They've got a plan for themselves. Maybe it's a friend of yours where you're ahead of them in line for a promotion or something like that. And they're like, yeah, well, I'm going to get rid of him. Sometimes just out of spite. There's no reason. Sometimes people just do mean things. You know, we like to think in this enlightened age that if somebody does something bad, it's because there's some deep personal hurt going on. No, not always. Some people are just mean and just spiteful. And they'll do this to us. How do we handle false accusations in the church? Let me tell you. We are never to entertain an accusation against somebody in the church unless there are multiple witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, You do not entertain an accusation against an elder except under the mouths of two witnesses. And I think you can apply that across the board. No one person should be allowed to come in and start slandering somebody else, and now we're going to have a meeting. And, and sometimes pastors can, unfortunately, handle this poorly. Somebody comes in with an accusation, maybe similar to the one I just described, and rather than going to the person and being on their team and treating them like a friend, now all of a sudden we've got this tribunal and this assumption of guilt, which is unfair. And even if it's proven that the person was not guilty, they're like, well, I'm not sticking around this place. I've been here for 10 years and you still don't trust me. I'm out of here. And if we have accusations and if they're real, everything we do is always with the goal of restoration. Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. That's how we handle these sorts of things. We don't do as it's called cancel culture in the church. We're going to ride you out of here on a rail. Everything we do, even if the person is guilty of everything they've been accused of, the first step is, okay, are you ready to repent so we can start making it right? That's how we handle things in God's church. But we can take this attitude in the world that has been amplified by social networks and everything else where there's no proof. 
There's just the report from the one person, and then everybody, millions of people you've never even known, are climbing all over each other to denounce you. And the unfortunate thing is the more we do that, the more we strengthen the side of ourselves that is brash and brazen and doesn't care what other people think, which is not something that we want to cultivate in ourselves. Right? In the church, we take these accusations very carefully. And also, by the way, you, I don't know if any of you all have noticed this, when people come to me and they've found out the latest scandal of this pastor or this church or this ministry, I'm usually not very interested in that because I know how it goes. I've seen the cycle a thousand times. Some guy rises to the top. He's everybody's favorite golden boy. He does something people don't like. Now we're ready to pull him right back down again. We act just like the world with our celebrities, and it's not fair. And if I don't know that person, and if I don't trust or, or have any familiarity with any of that stuff, I'd rather just not know about it and not say anything about it. There are exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, don't gossip about some pastor that's not yours, or some author, or some worship leader who's not yours, or some church you're never even going to go to. What are you doing that for? It's not right. But when it comes to your door, listen to what Peter tells us about this. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. He's saying, don't do something wrong and then come to the church and say you're persecuted because you killed a guy and now you're going to prison. Like, that's not persecution. That's justice. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. As a Christian, you need not even feel obligated to clear your name. There are places in the New Testament, and we'll get to some of them, where Paul was like, they can say whatever they want. The Lord's got me. He says, it is a very small thing for me to be judged by you. That's a great phrase. I want to use that later. Very small thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. You glorify Christ. Does not mean you've got to sit there and let people assume you've done the wrong thing. But sometimes, and this is just wisdom, when you start going through all the details of why you couldn't possibly be what they're accusing you of, you end up lending more wood to the fire that's coming at you than if you had just denied it and backed off and let the Lord handle it. It's almost like you're saying, I see why you might think that, but let me show you why it's not true. When you back off and let the Lord fight for you, you'd be surprised what the Lord will do. You've got to know that this is going to happen. You've got to be ready for it, and you can't let it break you if it's truly false. Just trust that God sees. But this is the hard part in verse 19 through 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. His anger was kindled. He sent Joseph to the prison. That word for prison there is round house. So you've got to think of one of those tall towers going up, and they would have thrown him into what we would call a dungeon, where the, the political prisoners were, the king's prisoners. Now, the penalty, of course, for rape in this culture and in most was actually death. So some have speculated that Potiphar kind of knew what his wife was like, and rather than have Joseph executed, sent him to prison in order to save face, but also to preserve Joseph. That's how some of the adaptations I've seen have preserved it. Again, there's some ambiguity there. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, the Bible says three separate laws that it gives us about rape that are interesting for us to look at because I think they give us some guides. He says, if a man lies with a woman who is betrothed, 
and she does not cry out in a crowded place, then they both are to be killed as if they were adulterers. Because the Bible is saying, if you committed something consensual, you are not going to take this man and have him stoned for what you have done. So the idea was, if you didn't cry out when there were people to hear you, then that was a, a way of, of saying that there was consent involved. If she was in, in the open country, or if this happened and she did cry out, then the man would be put to death. There is an interesting little thing that it mentions that is totally foreign to us, but you've got to understand the culture a little bit. That if the woman was not betrothed to anybody, and she was a virgin woman, and she was seized and lined with or raped, as we might say, and that, that word can range from the violent way we think about it to other things as well, the man was required to marry that woman and was not permitted to divorce her. Now we hear that and we go, wait a minute, that, that, you're going to make her marry that man? Consider how this culture worked at the time. If she was no longer a virgin because of this man, there is nobody that is going to want to marry her. Her father also in many cases, unfortunately, would probably have put her out of the house. She would have no way to take care of her. So in many ways, it was a punishment for the man saying, if you wanted to claim this woman, she's yours forever now. And he was not legally permitted to divorce her ever. She was in, in some instances, but uh, the, the, the culture was kind of messed up at this point. And the Lord did this in several cases. What Jesus explained later, he said, because of your hardness of heart, I had to give you some of these laws. So just interesting to see this is what the Lord would, would recommend. And for us, that teaches us that obviously that if a woman is caught in such a situation, she should not be punished for it. Secondly, that if this was in fact consensual and she wants to try to lie about it, then they both ought to be punished for it. Whatever the situation, Joseph had not done any of those things. And his integrity, which you've got to know this guy was talking about Joseph everywhere he went. I've got this Hebrew servant. He's incredible. I don't have to worry about anything. He just shows me the menu for dinner. I tell him if I like it or not, and then we're good to go. But now, where, where's Joseph? Well, he's in prison. Why? Well, he tried to come at my wife. So his integrity has suffered public calumny now. This is the hardest part of a false accusation. Sometimes people who should know better will believe those accusations against you. People who know you too well to let those things go without checking will believe those false accusations. People that have told you how much they love you and how great you are and how wonderful you are, they'll believe it. And they will isolate you in a shame that you did not earn. This is hard. When you've not done anything and the accusation starts to float around and then somebody who's not even related to the situation won't talk to you and you can't figure out why. What's going on? Well, I heard about what you did. What did I do? I didn't do any of that. They believe that I did that? You should know, but you don't know me better than that? That's hard to deal with. Sometimes people will do this because there's a personal advantage in it for them. Like, hey, I didn't cause this, this problem, but you know this can work out pretty well for me. I can move to the top of the list or whatever it is. We've seen this happen for political credibility where, of course, politicians and so on will just throw each other under the bus if it's going to get them a way to step up. Sometimes it's just naive where people don't know everything they hear or they believe. You've got some of those friends, I'm sure. And sometimes it's just a true lack of loyalty that we haven't cultivated with one another. And that's something that we ought to mitigate in the church. The church ought to be the place where we believe one another if something like that is going to come up, we're at least going to stand by one another. And if you hear something rotten about a friend of yours, you'll be the one to say, I I'm going to talk to them first. I know them too well. I don't believe that about them. I got proof. I got evidence. I got pictures. I want to hear it from him. I want to hear it from her. And then you go to the person and you find out. And even, even if there's some truth to it, 
Be their teammate. Walk through it with them. Well, people are going to assume that I'm just like that. Who cares? You love that person well. Jesus was not afraid to share the, the slander and the accusation that comes against you. You should not be afraid to share in that. You do the right thing, and who cares what people think about you? We've got to do that. Well, they're going to think that I'm okay with this kind of thing, but you're not, so it doesn't matter what they think. The Lord knows. We've got to be loyal to one another in the church, brothers and sisters. That's what we are, right? We have to cultivate that attitude. In the moment, when people come against you, your best friend, your family, God forbid, I heard you, on and on it goes. Like, you believe that? That's not true. Oh, I didn't know. Well, why would you believe it? In that moment, it can be really tempting to abandon your integrity. Well, you know what? If my best friend isn't even going to believe me, forget it. I don't need any of you. I'm moving on. I'm not staying at this church. I'm not staying at this place. I'm not calling you again. And you know what? If that's what you think I am, fine. I'm going to be that way. I've been accused by, by people sometimes. And people, have you noticed, always tend to accuse you of the thing they're doing. You know, say, well, Tyler is just a very, very aggressive leader. And, and he always just wants to put people down. And, and what that meant in most of those cases was there were people that wanted to take control of whatever ministry we were a part of. And I didn't allow that to happen. So all of a sudden, I'm a, I'm a harsh, overbearing leader. And you know, when you get the accusations like that, there's a temptation to say, fine, you want me to be a harsh, overbearing leader? I'm going to show you what a harsh, overbearing leader looks like. You don't even know the stuff that I decide not to say. But that's not right either, is it? This is exactly why we look to Christ in these moments. This is exactly what happened to Jesus when he was betrayed by what? By a kiss from his friend followed by hours of false trials. Jesus said no words during that time, but don't you think he wanted to? They couldn't get their witnesses to agree. Everybody was contradicting each other, and he's just standing there. And if it was me, I would just be like itching, ready to go. Just give me half a chance. I'll call down 12 legions from angels and rip you all to pieces. <laughs> and finally, he gets a death sentence because Pontius Pilate feared the Jews. He knew that it wasn't, wasn't fair. He knew that Jesus was innocent, and he still sentenced him to death. And then he gets up there, and all those same people are mocking him. Oh, Lord Jesus the Christ, why don't you come down from the cross? Heard you saved lots of people. The Bible calls it a gracious thing to endure injustice. Did you know that? 1 Peter 2.19 says that it is a gracious thing if you endure injustice by keeping your eyes on God. Peter has a lot to say about this. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We get so caught up in who did what and what's fair and you did this to me, so I'm going to do it right back to you. Peter reminds us that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Well, they're not going to do that to me. Then you have not understood what Christ has done for you. If we become sinners in our fight against sin, what have we gained? Satan doesn't care which sin you're committing. And do you not trust the one who bought you to take care of you? 2 Thessalonians 1.6 says, The Lord counts it as a righteous thing to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Let that thought comfort you when you're being afflicted. And that the Lord sees it as justice to repay that person with the same thing they're doing to you. But don't take that matter into your own hands. 
well, God's going to use me to do it. No, 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 no. God has already told you what to do. Stand still, Moses would say, and see the salvation of the Lord. When all your friends betray you, Proverbs 18, 24, Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Rely on the justice of God and the omniscience of God. God knows. He knows. And that's the hardest thing. You're sitting there at home and you can't tell anybody, but you know exactly what happened. And you can't even say it because if I say it, then they're going to take it the wrong way. God's like, I see that. I understand. So verses 21 through 23, coming to the end now. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So this is what really matters When the false accusations come, the Lord was with Joseph. And though his status had gone from up here to down here, that had not changed. The Lord was still with him. Psalm 105 tells us that he had fetters on his feet and a collar of iron because God was testing him. So this was no picnic, but it did get better. The steadfast love of the Lord brought his integrity to the warden's attention and blessed him, just as he'd been blessed before. It's the same story. Brought all the way down, rises all the way to the top. He gets brought down again, rises all the way to the top. It's going to happen one more time in his story. The first thing we saw that was that Joseph knew God, and that's what carried him through. If you know God, then the circumstances are not consequential. It does not matter what's happening around me if I know God. Because he is with you. Jesus told us, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. But but the situation is so bad. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, and the blood of Christ has bought you, and the Heavenly Father has adopted you, isn't that enough? This is why we can endure accusation and temptation and loss. Because there's always something better coming. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That verse makes no sense if things are not going bad in the moment. You all know how it's going to end with Joseph. But if you do not know God, you have no anchor for those situations. So I beg you, like we said at the very beginning, learn the Lord's voice. That is what will carry you through these times. The world is demonstrating in in these last years that it does not know how to handle these things. Does not know how to handle when sin is exposed. Does not know how to handle accusation or restoration. Because they do not have Christ as their example or their friend. But we have it ever before us to sustain us, to teach us, to compel us to do the right thing in the first place. Christian, be careful not to compromise yourself. But when injustice comes, endure it faithfully so that you may be blessed. I don't know if I can do that. Well, I'm calling you to trust that the love of Christ that helped him endure his false accusations is also on your side and is ready to help you too.